so super excited uh, for this boss talk. Uh, so we have uh, David McJanet, who's the CEO of HashiCorp, uh, joining us today. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, uh, but he's the CEO of HashiCorp, uh, which is a company with, uh, I think, over 1,300 employees, probably raised over $350 million of funding. Uh, and the thing that is really interesting, I find, about HashiCorp is that they've shown that they can repeatedly innovate and come up with open source projects uh, that have massive adoption in the world. So what people don't know is most enterprises on the planet today use software that was developed by HashiCorp. We certainly do at Databricks. Uh, so these are projects like Console and Terraform and Vault. Uh, and, but they also figured out how to really monetize this really well and grow a really healthy business. Uh, but Dave is also a marketing genius and a strategist. So really want to hone in on uh, his thoughts on marketing and how you kind of set the company strategy. And he's done that in many companies before. So uh, looking forward to deep diving on this stuff uh, uh, with uh, Ben and uh, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. All right. It's um, going to be so, exciting. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, so the thing I actually wanted to start with uh, is, you know, your uh, uh, sort of view on product marketing and the story of a company. Uh, and its role in how important it is for companies. Uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and also how you did that, because I believe you basically did that at GitHub, you did that at Hortonworks, at HashiCorp. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so maybe I'll... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll and Dave, that. if you could kind of highlight, because you've had varying degrees of um, kind of good products, competitive products in those companies. And, you know, some of them were harder than others. So if you could kind of highlight that too, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I think that the, the takeaway is the story is the strategy is the simple mantra. <laughs> um, yeah, well, all right. For all, for all of them, I, I think that like that, 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 that's sort of the core truth of it all. So, so you know, for me, it's kind of hard to delineate product marketing from you know, sort of the other types of positioning that exist. So I think, I think maybe... You know, obviously, to me, you know, the, the positioning is everything. And, and like, st strategic positioning sort of is the company. And I think the the mistake most companies make at the early stage um, is that they are talking about their product rather than sort of their mission. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll answer your your question maybe slightly differently, which is product uh, product marketing is important. But actually, the company mission articulation is more important. Um, and I think the um, you know it's sort of when people talk about positioning, they sort of, they sort of mix things up, right? They, they they say, well, we're talking about the company or the product or the the mission. And, and we actually have always said that there are three kinds of positioning. There's sort of the corporate positioning, which is sort of who are you. There's the product position, which is what do you sell? What does your product do? <laughs> and, you know, the, four, the first one maybe appears on your business cards and the, the bottom one sort of is, is what the product decision is made, made around. But the strategy of your company is, is, is sort of the audience promise, which is the, you know, the audience positioning, sort of the, the answering the why do you exist uh, you know, against the backdrop of what's happening in the market? You know, why do you exist? And I think each of that, each of those pieces of positioning is a separate exercise. And uh, FG Ali and I were just talking about the GitHub positioning previously, and I, I think it's maybe a good example. Um, so when you think about the three kinds of positioning for GitHub, there, there, there are three. The corporate positioning is pretty in your face. It's, you know, how people build software. You're basically declaring it's the whole market for software development, all of it. That's, that all, that, that's, that's what we do. That's what the company does branding-wise. The product positioning is where software is built or, you know, some derivative wording of that. And, you know, those two things are interesting, but they don't really appeal to you as a strategy. It's not really something actionable. You need to know those two things to inform the audience mission, which is, you know, empowering developers to build great software. And there are three messaging pillars that support how you do that. That's the story that you talk about. And I think that's the repeatable exercise that you do, regardless of, of where you're competing, um, if, that, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah, and can you can, I, can you kind of highlight because yeah. one of the things that um, and this is this is a really great framework, but you know I think a lot of people you know particularly uh, technical CEOs dismiss marketing as spin. So maybe you could talk about mm -hmm. the difference between how important is it to get all the way to the truth with your positioning. How do you mix in aspiration like you're going to do all software development? And then 
you know, what is really spin and how does that play together as you put together a story? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, there's, there's a tendency to dismiss the marketing as just sort of a, a marketing spin on top of, of, you know, what might be the product, uh, the reality proof, proof points, right. The product, the product truth. Yep. Um, and that's why you actually have to delineate those, those, those three things. Let's just talk about like product positioning. There is whatever you describe the product positioning as has to have truth to it. It's sort of the truthiness of what the product does, but what your product does will actually evolve over time. And it's much more, much more tied to the positioning of the mission of what you're trying to do. Right. So, so, so to me, the actual starting point is funny. So um, just like the, the history, it's, it's almost, it's almost repeatable in this case. So I was part of um, uh, the original folks that, that got what became pivotal. We created cloud foundry actually it was 10 years ago yesterday. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So that, that positioning <laughs> exercise. And then we did uh, Hortonworks uh, from zero and then uh, GitHub and then HashiCorp from zero. So, and we've sort of done this, we use the same framework for all of it. And it turns out, the very first thing I did at each one of those exercises was get clarity on the mission statement because that's the only thing that mattered because that's what you wrap the company behind. It's sort of, hey, if, if you're a GitHub and your mission is delineated as, hey, empowering developers to build great software and the pillars are unite the world's developers on a common community, number two, give them the world's best workflow to do their job, and number three, enable GitHub as a platform for the entire app, app dev lifecycle, that is your strategy. That's actually evergreen. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, that's a good point, right? Because you're you're actually marketing to your own people. Um, exactly. You know, that, that's one thing I think people miss as CEO is that if you're not if you don't have a really clear marketing message, a really clear story, you actually don't have a really clear strategy. <laughs> and let me. It, it, yeah. It's obvious when you know it, but then so many people don't know that. So that's a, that, that's such a, a great point. You have to. Sort of yeah, let me stop you there. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, let me let me stop you a second. So, like, you basically started by saying, product marketing is your strategy. You know, that's kind of provocative, right? Because a lot of people think, like, okay, you know, I'm going to build an awesome product. I'm super technical. I'll get that right, and then I hire salespeople. They'll sell it, and then we'll get these marketing people. They'll like, you know, maybe put together some brochures or some web pages to explain what it is. But you're saying basically, your strategy is product marketing is your strategy. And you yeah. should start yeah. with that. You should get that right first and foremost before you do anything else, right? Right. So I, I would actually start with delineating all three of those, um, you know, they, because, because they all matter for different purposes. I think the, the mistake that we see most often is people try to make, have one statement of positioning that captures everything. And you can't because there are three. So yeah, that audience strategy is the singular most important thing. And, and the tricky thing about it in B2B tech is that, is that you cannot create that with some level, without some level of technical acumen that really understands how the market is, where the market is going, what the secular trend is, and then how do I sort of want to nestle myself against what's happening in that market. So it's actually the opposite of having, um, having a sort of marketing function be a follower. It turns out like people that do this best are former product managers or former uh, sales engineers, people that really understand the tech at a level that they can say, yes, this is uh, technically accurate and holds water when I stare at it uh, against the light, of, uh, the light of the sun. I think that's the difference. You know, marketing is different in different companies. Uh, I would say that, that the last four times we've done it, it's been very repeatable in that way where it is, it is marketing led in that sense. So let, let me ask you this. So if it's repeatable, then I have a question. But at the same time, you said you need to have credibility. So which way kind of is it? Um, can I, should database go hire head of product marketing that used to work at say Workday or some HR software company or how domain specific is it? How important is the domain? It's, it's obviously to do it well, it requires pretty deep domain. So uh, like I take my, my experience as an example. I, I actually started my tech world, my tech, my tech entree in the world of uh, middleware. So I worked in product development for middleware. Right. And then progress into marketing out of that. Turns out all the companies I've participated in actually generally in the infrastructure space, because I cannot, I've done sort of done my 10,000 hours in that market. It would be hard, harder. I could apply a framework uh, to another market, but it's, but it's, I'm less likely to really understand the secular trend behind what's going on. That's causing the opportunity for me to create something that new. So I, you, you kind of need domain expertise to do it well. And, and obviously domain expertise spans, right? So, I've done it in the world of data and then all the world of pure infrastructure. Uh, those two things are sort of in the same 
category. You could do it for APM probably. You know, at the app layer, it would be harder. So I think generally these people traffic in these common domains and these domains do overlap a little bit. But yeah, you, you sort of need the, the, you need to really deeply understand the market to do, to do this accurately. So how do you then, because, um, you know, whenever I find, you know, whenever you need to hire, you have already a lot of constraints, right? You want to find people that are great. You probably want them to live in the same place as your headquarters. We'll get to that topic later. And, you know, there's a bunch of constraints. And then if you add an additional constraint, which is they have to understand your space, then it gets very hard to find the right people, right? Now you've narrowed down to a very, very tiny group of people that you could hire. So how do you how do you find the great product marketers? Because you know it's gonna be very very few people that understand exactly what HashiCorp yeah. does or Databricks does, and, and, what and do get them to do product them? marketing. And yeah. what do you ask them when you interview them? Like what what do you know? Like somebody's great at this can can do that? Like because it is a very special skill. Like most people don't understand stories um, and yeah. how to how to kind of construct a compelling narrative. So how do you figure that out in an interview, whether they can do that and like whether they can also have the domain expertise yeah. and, and so forth to tell your narrative? Well, it, tur it turns out like some level of technical competence is, is the foundation. So that's what you're testing for is sort of, did they actually understand the tech? Um, but the biggest, the, the biggest catalyst is people that can distill simplicity from complexity. Like that's the raw skill. <laughs> that's what you're testing for. Because these markets are so noisy, they're so complicated, and I would I would argue that a lot of people, even in the buying community, don't understand what the vendors are talking about, and they don't want to admit it because it's projected so technically uh, complex. So so you have to be able to still simplicity out of complexity. That's the that's the canonical skill set. There are some very tactical things skills you have to have around like the the, the practice of pro product marketing, and that tends to come out of the bigger companies, candidly. It, you know, I spent time at Microsoft. I think they do it very, very well. You know, what like the actual skill delivery. But the thing that really sets people apart is the technical competency, the ability to traffic in that comfortably, and then the ability to still comp uh, simplicity out of complexity. And to, to Ali's point, it's really hard to find those people. Um, yeah. You find you find. So what them. do you do? Um, and, and it. And, and so, like, take take HashiCorp as an example. So, we we we've made a decision that we're we're going to be a multi-product company, and each of these products participates in different markets. So, we have you know Terraform for infrastructure provisioning, it participates in the uh, in the the ops market. We have Vault, which is the basis of identity-based security, completely different product. We have networking uh, with console. These completely different markets. So, it's kind of impossible to find people that can act at that level, um, you know, in, in the market, we have, we've had to create them. So we actually, we federate into actually four different business groups inside of our company. Uh, and each one of them has a product management, product marketing and engineering trio that is the core. The product marketing person is, is the owner of the story for that product. Um, and we create them. So we, we actually run here internally, like we gave up trying to hire these people a long time ago. And we said, Hey, let's hire people that have former SEs or former uh, product management type people. And we, we actually have a, a, a development program that we'd run internally for them to try and impart the skills. I also spend a lot of time with those people because I understand like they are the single highest leverage thing in your organization. And it, it is a weird thing to say, and I know I'm a bit marketing biased, but, but like if you get that story right, like play back to the GitHub one, if I understand the three pillars that support that mission of empowering developers to build great software, my product plan, my go-to-market plan, my partner plan are just derivatives of it. And so it is that important to get right. And you have to sort of acknowledge, you just have to have people to know how to do that. Uh, and you have to create them if you can't find them because you know they're, they're, they are super scarce and they're kind of domain specific. And, and Dave, wow. what, are the uh, questions, you gave what are the questions that you ask <laughs> people to figure out if they can distill complexity into simplicity? Like, you know, <laughs> because that, that is like, it's a very abstract skill. Yeah, and it's weird. Some people, it's just easier than others. And it's it's one of those hard things to teach, uh, and, and, but, but it's obvious have when you, you ever, see it. Have you ever taught that successfully? I've never taught that successfully. No, no, that's yeah. an organic, that's a skill. That's not, the, yeah. or that's a competency, not a skill. A talent, yeah. Talent. That's an attribute, not a, not, not a skill. Um, You're born with it. Yeah, just... Yeah. yeah. So actually, to your question, though, there was a, there's actually a New York Times, uh, you may have even participated in it years ago, but the uh, like the, the corner office series. And one caught my attention yeah. about 10 years ago, I think maybe in the, one of the very first ones they did, and it was entitled, Can You Pass a CEO Test? 
<laughs> it's, a really, it's, it's a really good read. It's really short. The basic point is, in an interview, I get someone to say, hey, what's the, what's the biggest challenge facing your current company? And okay, great. You kind of double click down on that. Okay, if I gave you 50 bucks and I said you have to grow revenue 30% next year, what would you do? And you get one of two answers. You get yeah. you get sort of the the hey, these are the seven things I could do, or, you know, and, and it's and it's jargon that I don't really understand because it's not not a market yeah. I'm familiar with. Or you get people that say, well, it's not that complicated. There are two things we can pick. Like, which one do you want to do? And you sort of go down that path, and it becomes really obvious really yeah. like, quickly. It tends to be framework thinkers, candidly, hmm. uh, that, that, that do it better. It's a hard one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that no, was interesting. It's, it's really one thing you yeah. said is you're basically training them, right? Yeah. You said that. Uh, it's so hard to find these guys that you're actually training them internally in your company. How does that work? Do. How, what's that bootcamp like? And can we send people to your bootcamp? <laughs> we, uh, yeah, so we, we're, we're super lucky. And I think, again, in the, in the world of, uh, of infrastructure, these ecosystems are really small. Uh, and it's a very small group of people that, that have overlapped. So there are certainly some folks here that this is not our, not our first company together. And so we run, uh, in this case, a six-month program. And I think there are six sort of, and it's the combination of like, uh, we use the 60-20-10 framework of 10% in class, 20% uh, stretch assignments, 60% on the job learning. Uh, that's hmm. the basic framework. So we do have this sort of this six class series, which, which you know, we double click on positioning, we double click on pricing, we double click on packaging, we double click on sales process and, and, and the bill of materials required to support each element of the sales process. Uh, and the basics of audience uh, audience narratives. Those are probably the five topics we talk about most. But the core is the positioning. How do you how do you impart those frameworks that are reusable? And then uh, you know the, the other twenty and 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 sixty percent uh, of the time of the program, uh, a bunch of that is actually shadowing. They shadow me. They shadow some of the other folks here. Uh, and then we have we have them run stretch assignments through the course of the year. So it's it's not a short term thing. Um, and I would argue, actually, most CEOs do this job, <laughs> Truth, truthfully, right? Like, like um, mm -hmm. who, who creates the story in your company in the early stage? It's almost always the, the founding team because they have a point of view uh, as to how this market's going to unfold and, and, and your role within it. And that tends to get out of whack over time unless pushed back in by that core relentless founding team. So good CEOs, what I've observed, they are relentless. Like, I can tell you the positioning for HashCorp has not changed in five years. Right. Let me ask you this. Uh, yeah. yeah. How much how much should that be the CEO's job? Like at that would certainly I've had my fingers in that pie since the beginning and still till this day. Uh, is, you know, how, how much can you just delegate that down and get ahead of marketing and they'll take care of that and you can just set you, and forget? You, you can't. You, you you can't because I think uh, it kind of goes back to the founding. If you look at if you look at the the original thesis of, of this this company or even Hortonworks when we did that, we're having <laughs> to talk about that one. That that projected mission did not change the entire time we were doing it. It will not change. And so it's almost part of your founding thesis. I, was, I spent a bunch of time as an EIR, actually, uh, before doing this. And I met with a lot of companies. And it was super obvious to me. It was actually super striking that everybody could articulate the value of their product. No one could articulate why. And, and those that cannot articulate that the why I should care was basically those who didn't have the company story straight. Those ones typically hit a revenue wall around 15 or $20 million in ARR because you can't really get much past that unless you have really this lock. So it ends up being your foundational story as a company, and that needs to be owned by the CEO. You can push that to the marketing function to execute it, to you know uh, mm -hmm. institutionalize that, but, but that story is everything. Like if, if you get that, I, the way we describe it is to say, you know, startups are bets, right? They're bets as to how markets are going to unfold. If you get that bet right, you have the opportunity to build a, co build a company. If you get that bet wrong, no amount of execution is going to help you. So, <laughs> yep. so you're making that <laughs> bet, like my bet, my seminal bet. Like, for example, uh, you know, I'll give, give two because we got one of them wrong. Um, but, uh, but I'll talk about the Hatchcourt one. My bet five years ago was I think the steady state of the world is multi-cloud. Contentious bet at the time because mm -hmm. it looked like it was going to be the only thing. My yeah. bet is that if that's the case, I can tell you what problems people are going to have. They need a consistent way to provisioning, security, networking, and hopefully scheduling. Those are the problems people are going to have. Got it, right? So that positioning is the basis of the whole company, and everything else is just a derivative of that. And I think that's that's where it needs to be, um, and that's my problem. Like, 
I want to be the one that gets that wrong. I don't want a marketing person to, to bear that responsibility. Yeah, and, you, you mentioned have you ever seen have you ever seen like, like it does seem like if the CEO doesn't have that, you know, that being the reason for being um, then that can't really ever come from marketing, can it? Because the, no. the, because it's got to be true. That part has to be true. You can't spin true. that. That's got to be the truth. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, again, there's a nuance here. I, I, my, my, the world I think of is the world of B2B. And I do think in the world of B2C, yeah. it can happen organically and you can't quite explain it. But in the world of B2B, where this is somewhat repeatable, these are existing market categories transitioning from old world to new world it happens over and over again, right? Yeah. New architectural approach. Like there is a pattern to this stuff. We need to have a point of view early. And if, and if you don't have that, um, you will hit a wall. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And uh, if you just go on what you said in the beginning, product marketing is strategy. Would you delegate yeah. strategy to your head of marketing? <laughs> you know, of course, yeah. the CEO needs to be involved in the key strategy setting. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, as a, as a multi-product company, like I guess other comp other product, other people that are trying to do this may have the same experience. Like we are deliberately setting out to be a multi-product company. And so you sort of have to think about org, org structure. How do you inculcate that? understanding in each of the different quote unquote business groups that are executing their own mission in their own markets. So like what we take it one step further and we say like, yeah, I will oversee, I'll be directive on the creation of that, but you'll be, you will maintain that mission over time in your BU and it will change a little bit as, as we understand more about the market. So we sort of pushed that decision-making down into actually our product marketing quarterbacks in this company, which, which otherwise would be the CEO's problem, but that's specific to us. Hey, you were going to tell us what you got wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, I think the, uh, the we got lots wrong. That that um, I, I think I think the super interesting thing actually just just where I was going to go was on the positioning of the Hadoop market and how that evolved. And you know, think about how how that market's evolved over time. The core thesis at the time, I think years ago, was that uh, you know obviously explosion types, explosions of new types of data, clickstream, machine sensor, all that kind of stuff, which is going to overwhelm the data warehouse. Uh, and you make the bet that actually commodity hardware uh, with commodity, uh, you know, Hadoop on top of it is going to uh, overwhelm the data warehouse because of the, the cost of storage just being eminently cheaper. And so that then proceeds you down the path. Okay, that's the secular trend, like over, overflowing data, right? The secular trend, therefore, is I'm going to make the bet that the cost of storage and compute on commodities is going to be cheaper than EMC SAN plus uh, Teradata, right? So you're like, that, yeah. that, that's the thesis. Out of that comes the positioning statement of enabling a modern data architecture with Hadoop, which includes your data warehouse plus, plus Hadoop. But that's the core thesis. And I think we understood that the world was going cloud. And so I left, I left that in 2014, wherever that was. Um, we, and, 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 but obviously since then, like, that needed to evolve to acknowledge that actually the cost of storage on cloud was getting lower and lower and lower. And in fact, lower than the on-prem cost of commodity exit six hardware and storage. So, so that's an example of making a bet on a secular trend. And actually the secular trend played out slightly differently. It turned out the cost of compute on, on storage on cloud was cheaper. And that actually impacts your positioning. You need, to, you need to then pivot and make a decision that says, ah, my new mission is actually no longer enabling a modern data architecture. I need to reorient the company around the cloud delivered modern data architecture. So like, that's an example of like, you can change this positioning as you learn more in the market, but just understand you're completely changing your strategy when you do that. My job as CEO is, we, we're, we are just looking at this in terms of laddered time horizons, right? Like my, my time horizon is three years out. That's where my interest is. And so I need to make sure that I'm observing the secular trend so I don't miss that transition before it becomes obvious to everybody else. And I think that's the transition that happened in the data market. Does that make sense? That, that's awesome. Okay, there's a word you keep using here, which I think is like essential. We've talked about in previous boss talks, which affects strategy. You keep saying secular trends. What is that and how you think about it? And how does one get those right and sort of wrap its head around that concept? Yeah, I think maybe this speaks to the essence of, of how, how these repeatable companies get built that are big. Is how do you, so what is the secular trend that is going on in the world? And obviously there, some of them are obvious, at the high level, like, okay, the world's going cloud. That's a great, that's a secular trend. Um, but within that, actually, well, the world's going from like data warehouse to cloud managed data infrastructure. And in fact, it's, it's so within the meta trend, there's a sub trend. 
So depending on which and associated with that data market is actually an addressable spend category that is well understood. It's probably 60 or 70 billion. I don't know when I, I worked on the SQL Server business years ago. And I think it was only 30 billion at the time. It keeps getting bigger. But, but, that, but that trend is that that is migrating from old world to new world. And so understanding what those trends are is sort of the, the, the essential element to these bets we make. Uh, the beauty, of, the reason we all like these uh, these uh, tech markets is because they move so fast. So it's super intellectually interesting to keep participating as they change, as they change, as they change, and you can almost see them changing. So the secular trend at the data layer is that one. The secular trend at the message queuing layer is actually, oh, the world's going from like you know multicast uh, or MQ series to actually streaming. The the at the at the runtime layer, it's going from app servers to actually container platforms, right? And you can kind of see those trends. So I think. Understanding that is again is sort of the basis of okay how you position yourself against that that shift. Yeah, and you know it's a simpler way to think of it is just big market trends that are happening. They actually kind of slow moving, right? I mean, when we started DataBooks, we put our bet on the secular trend that the cloud will take over. That was 2012. We were talking about it. Then it wasn't obvious. I think uh, you know that's why HortonWorks and many other companies weren't betting on it at the time. We bet on AI. It wasn't super obvious that machine learning and AI would be big, and we bet on open source. Uh, and then over time, if you end up being right, you get a head start. I mean, it's how Netflix kind of got ahead with their streaming video uh, and eventually replaced Blockbuster and these things. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. How important is this for category creation? Because you know, people talk about creating category, um, that's super important. A lot of marketing departments are obsessed by that. How essential is that? And what's your thoughts on category creation? Um. I, and and when and and yeah. Dave talk about like when should you try to create a category and when should you try to just capture the category that the incumbent is vulnerable in? Yeah, I um, I'm a big fan of the concept in that book, Play Bigger, uh, which is about kind of you know the the, the basic thesis being digital signals all accrue so strongly to the category leader that it's hard to be second or third place. Uh, yeah. If I want to do a, a web search for electric cars, you know, I, I'll, I'll get one result and it'd be pretty obvious. And so that's a new phenomenon, actually, that didn't happen a decade ago or 15 years ago. That's new. So it actually it actually makes it hard not, it, it makes it quite hard to participate in someone else's category. We, we think about it slightly differently. Uh, we actually, again, repeatable frameworks that we used a few times now, we think about more about owning the conversation. Uh, we want to own the conversation about uh, what's going on. So, because the category definition kind of becomes clear over time, but if there's a trend from you know message queuing to streaming, I want to own that conversation. So it's very hard for me to go compete with IBM head to head in the world of message queuing because they own that category. They've done that for 50 years. But if I can describe to the world, actually, we're going through a transition, and this is the new way of the world, and engage you in a philosophical debate and conversation about this new world, that's much more, uh, that, that, that yields much more fruit to me because there, there, there's sort of clear ocean for me as opposed to trying to play in someone else's world. So yes, we then tar charge our marketing department to own the conversation, uh, less so about owning the category. And I think that like owning the category is a derivative of, of owning the conversation, which is a much more actionable thing to do. Uh, that, you know, that's a, just a question. That's a really interesting point. Has there been a startup that has owned the conversation you think recently that's done really well? Um, well, you know, I think, I actually think, yeah, I go back, going back to the Hadoop world, I, I think Hortonworks did an excellent job of owning the conversation. Excellent job. Right. That, that was a company, and to your earlier question, we entered a market two, three yeah. years behind the incumbent cloud era. We had a much, we had, a, we had, a, we had an uphill battle to, to fight on the product side just because of the timing of it. And we just committed to owning the conversation. We said, hey, we're gonna, we, we, we think there are 100,000 practitioners in the world at this point that talk about Hadoop, that care about Hadoop. I want 30,000 of them following me. And, and how do I entertain them? How do I keep them engaged? And that is a authentic commitment to content creation, which is, hey, how do I create content that, that engages them? And it actually created this sort of bottoms up entry into a market which should never have happened. So I think that was a good example of it. I I think I actually think uh, I think HashiCorp does a pretty good job of it. Honestly, we got yeah, I think like 96 million downloads of our products in the last 12 months. <laughs> um, 
And so I think our team, particularly on the DevRel side, is doing an excellent job of owning the conversation about, you know, what do these technical things mean? Like, how do I think about credentials management? How do I think about service mesh and owning those conversations? And there are specific conversations we care about. I think companies that are going after the practitioner uh, do a better job of those of that rather than those that don't have a practitioner emotion. Got it. Got it. How do you even measure, measure something like that? Is that even a measurable thing? Owning the conversation? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a message pull through. We, we, we measure it. There are lots of ways we, we, we can do it. We, um, <laughs> in, the, in the Hadoop world, we actually, we built, we built a Hadoop app to do it, uh, where you can just measure sentiment data across the globe from the different sources to, to measure like, you know, up, down and your relative motion on it. So yeah, you can. Um, obviously, it's subjective. I would say the other super interesting thing that that does for you, it, it kind of turns the positioning game on its head once you start doing this. And this was a surprising learning for us maybe six or seven years ago is, is we started off with a thesis on our on our positioning. And actually, as we started to engage the market digitally, the market told us what they were reacting to and what they weren't, right? So digital, the digital signal started to tell you, you know what really matters? I get the modern data architecture value proposition, but you know what? Every time we publish a, a topic on integration, blows up. Ah. Noted. Guess what goes into my pitch deck? Every time we we talk, we we we, talk, we, we publish a topic, you know, a, 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 a to, uh, content in this category around, uh, you know, completeness of like comparing this to databases. Blows up. Got it. Okay. So it actually flips the whole thing on its head. I start with a thesis of my positioning statement, and actually then flip it around and use the digital signals to inform the positioning that that actually has now been proven. And we did the same thing at GitHub. It was hilarious. Like. The pitch deck that was created out, you know, uh, there was just a derivative of the digital signals that I'd seen. Of, like, of course, it's going to work, um, and 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 so that's how you turn around and said, sorry, not what you asked specifically, but maybe uh, a uh, <laughs> makes a lot of sense. And and by the way, I mean, the question on can you should you go after an existing category? Um, I think if you take an existing category and you detect the secular trend within that category, yeah, right. I mean, if you're a car producer, but you know, electric cars, right? Then you can actually sure. create. A category out of an existing category, and you can then own the messaging around it, right? So, you know, this is what Databricks did with the lake house pattern. Uh, you know, you see the trend towards people wanting to have lots of different data types and do machine learning on it. So then you name it and you start a conversation around it. And I think the best, honestly, uh, way to measure if your category is actually being created is if other people are coming in with points of view and saying, well, actually, we kind of, we, we are actually the ultimate lake house, you know? Uh, yep. Our company is that, you know, and, and here's our view on it. We actually have a slightly different view on that. We think of it this way. And that's kind of what happened with Lakehouse. We got three, four of the really sort of big giants writing big blogs saying, oh, you know, we're really the real one. And here's how it works. Um, then you really have it. Because one of the mistakes we made yeah. in the early days was just measure a number of, you know, blog posts or mentions in the post. But it's, it's really yeah. you want to get the sort of other people to say, hey, we're the real thing here. Yeah, that's a that, that's a really good point because companies get so emotional about that. They're like, "Oh my God, they stole our marketing," but that's actually that's what great. you want them to do. You want them. So we actually know, did uh, that. Yeah. Sorry to make you lose so I was going to say, but that's exactly what. Uh, if you go back to the Hadoop experience, there, there was a very deliberate reason why we chose the wording "enabling a modern data architecture with Hadoop," because it's an incredibly ecosystem friendly. If you do a search. On Google today, you will see, you know, HP plus Hadoop is a modern data architecture. You will see vertical. You will see like, you know, every every ISV in the world just sort of adopts that, and you can take it to them to 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 own the own the conversation. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, hey, you talk a lot about minimum viable audience. What is that, and why is it so important? Yeah, I was kind of going back to the uh, the as we're getting these companies going, like nobody cares about what we're doing. So how do we how do we how do we get to the point where people care? And, uh, and it was actually uh, Mark Holmes, who, who you know, runs marketing for us here. Uh, a long time ago, he, we were in a bar and he goes, you know what, this is, I think there's this concept of minimum viable audience the same way there is a minimum viable product. So how can we, how can we establish enough people to care about what we're doing so we can actually uh, you know, <laughs> build a business here? Because it doesn't help us that we're sitting here building cool tech that nobody's ever, ever heard of. And I, and I think that concept actually really, really matters uh, in as you think about distribution channels in the modern world, like, because we're all competing against incumbents. They have way more salespeople than, than we're ever going to have. So the only way you can really fight them is use your asynchronous or asymmetrical uh, distribution uh, advantage 
against them, which is like, let's build a really big direct following of people following following us, figure out a way to get them to download digitally our products. So if that's your, okay, well, I can hire a lot of sales reps to, uh, to, to, to sell stuff. Yes, I'm gonna do that because that's how this stuff sells, but actually I really am just trying to build a direct to, to consumer channel um, and so I think, I think, like I sort of used the Hadoop example before where we, we looked in 2011, I think it was, where we said, Hey, I think there are a hundred thousand people with Hadoop on their resume or with Hadoop on, on LinkedIn or, or, or in the Hadoop user groups, what percentage of them do we need to have engaged with us for it to matter? If that's my target audience. Uh, and we, we ended up spending just, just again, tactically, we ended up spending a bunch of money on social media at the time that you probably can't do this quite as well today to try and buy followers. It didn't matter if they were in India or in markets that were not necessarily gonna buy from us. We just wanted to get, we said, if we can get to 30,000, we think it'll it'll tip. And it was actually super cool to watch. We, we used, we basically ran the company like an editorial, like a magazine on an editorial calendar, you know, meet on a meet on a, on a, on a Monday, on a Friday, figure out what was gonna get published on Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, just run it like an editorial calendar to engage that audience. And, it, and it, that is sort of the, the, the mechanism for, for that's super repeatable is you use the digital social media channels and yeah, like how much does a follower cost you to, to acquire on LinkedIn? I don't know, maybe 12 bucks or something like that. So it takes, it takes a fair amount of money uh, to do that at scale. But you hit a tipping point at some point where that audience starts participating without you. And that's when you know you've done it. And for us, it was around 30 or 40,000 people. All of a sudden, people started contributing content digitally as opposed to us having to entertain them. I think that's super repeatable. That's awesome. So that's a good segue. So minimum viable audience. So it really is an audience that's listening to you. That's a good segue into open source. And, and, and uh, actually, can we just break down minimal, minimum viable audience? Because I think that's a... You know, it's intuitive if you've been CEO for quite a while, but it's it's kind of an interesting concept. And what you're really talking about, or, or let me understand what you're talking about. It seems like well, there's <laughs> the whole market, and then there is, okay, what part of the market can you get to with the channel that makes the business kind of work so that you can expand? And, and maybe you could get into a little sharper definition of that. Yeah, I, so, so I... Uh... Yeah, obviously we all find this stuff super fascinating because of the patterns we observe. And I think the, the B2B thing for me is just a really neat uh, pursuit because of the, the, the duplicity of personas. So you start, you almost have to te tease it apart and say, okay, well, who are the personas that matter in this market? There's the practitioner and then there's the tech decision maker. And like, let's not treat them as the same thing. Let's delineate them. So when I'm talking, when I'm talking about minimum viable audience, I'm really talking about the practitioner audience. Uh, and knowing that I'm engaged, I have to engage the tech decision maker audience in a slightly different way. So, you know, that 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 starts off as like a founder engaging a community on Twitter and engaging them on GitHub. And as it matures, becomes a more professional developer relations orientation kind of a function. <laughs> and you're just trying to get my message uh, communicated to those practitioners in the language that that is, you know, native to them. So it's the same story. Um, but it's in the language for practitioners. So take the Hadoop market, like I'm telling the tech decision maker, enabling a modern data architecture with Hadoop, the practitioner could care less. They're just trying to, you know, build a, an application to, you know, to feed into HP Vertica at a lower cost. <laughs> <laughs> and so, it's, but, it's, but it's the same message, right? Like it's the same message, just in a different language. So I think that's how we start, we kind of tease these things apart. So who are the personas I'm trying to engage? and and. I'm really just trying to build a practitioner audience because the only way I can really engage the tech decision maker audience, like that stuff's pretty well understood. Um, <laughs> and it takes salespeople and it takes marketing events and it takes, you know, content that appeals to them. Um, and, and so I think splitting it apart is, is the start. Is that, does that answer your question? Yeah, you know, I, I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's a, uh, you, you know, it is the, the mistake that so many people make because they're, they, they'll bring in very senior go to market people who have run kind of marketing in a larger context, but haven't, you know, they know what to do, but they don't know how to get started. <laughs> and yeah. the, you know, and, and th th those principles are so critical if you are getting started, if you don't know how to do that, it doesn't matter if you know how to run a big giant marketing organization, you and, can't actually help the company. And that's a huge learning, I think. And in fact, I tweeted this out a couple of days ago because it was on my mind, like zero to one and one to N are totally different jobs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
And and I actually think like so what we just what we're just describing there is is a little bit of what I alluded to at the intro is is how do you build an organization that's really good at zero to one? Because we're going to do one to n, but I don't want to ever lose the zero to one ability. And yeah. and and the people are different, like and the skill sets are different. Um, and, and and yeah, like if you hire someone coming out of VMware, I spent time there as well. Like you just don't know how to do that part because you're a one to n. Uh, and, and I think that's where people get hung up and get frustrated by marketing. It's because it is a it is it is a different skill set, a different phase. Yeah, yeah, awesome. for sure. Um, switching gears to open source, which is super related. You know, when we started DataWorks, in fact, to get the minimum viable audience, um, the co-founders would we would rent a car from enterprise and go down on one-on-one and we would go to these companies and we would try to get that audience and do meetups and talk about the tech. And that was really how we kind of got started getting the market to think of us as market thought leaders. And we will go there with our free t-shirts, jeans and sneakers and then talk about the tech. And it turned out that if you could just flip those key tech companies, forward tech companies in Silicon Valley and they were blog about you you can kind of get spread that technology then as waves throughout the planet. So I'm curious, sort of how important is open source as part of that strategy for you to get a minimum viable audience? Because you guys, all your four key products are open source based, right? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, all of ours, we, we now have eight products, believe it or not, and, uh, and they're all open source. They, um, yeah, I kind of think that this is a nuanced question because uh, open source didn't help the Hadoop market all that much because it was being developed in the open source model by a, by a relatively small group of people. The magical technology is stuff like 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 you know Spark ultimately, where people are that are engaging with the tech are also the ones contributing to it. So so it's hugely advantageous because you've aggregated a bunch of people that are participating around the project, and those will become your early users. They they become your your original audience. Um, but that's going to be a rel relatively small group of people. Um, you have to figure out how to expand beyond that. So how much of a sort of threat are you to yourself? How much of a competition is your open source to yourself? You know, I can just download your open source software and just run it, run it myself. And maybe maybe I'll get call you for support. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mitchell answered this one best when he said, he said, when thinking about open source business models, the idea that you can aggregate a million people and if you can just monetize 1% of them, you can build a business runs up against the reality that you've aggregated a million people with the desire not to pay you. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, so you have to think really hard about the monetization bit um, up front. And I actually think, I actually think GitHub, got, GitHub got it right. If you think about how GitHub monetized open source, and I'll bring that back to how we think about it in a second. Basically what they did is they said, hey, Git is open source. Everybody's going to contribute to Git. That's good for everybody. And so the, the individual user can use Git without any constraint, but I'm going to focus on like the organizational needs of people using Git. So their business is actually an app that provides a prescriptive workflow for teams to collaborate around Git. And in so doing, there's actually no conflict, but they're able to leverage the halo of Git to say, oh, hey, if you want to use Git, we've created a version with prescriptive workflow and the ability for policy and governance and audit trails and all the things the companies care about. So you basically, you bifurcate your product delivery into how do we make the market standardized on the open source tech by giving the individual everything they need? And then how do we build a viable business long-term that, that is actually a different set of products? And I think that's the takeaway. It is a different set of products, which are the commercial products, which address the problems of organizational complexity. And those are actually pretty repeatable. It's sort of the, you know, what does what a team need? What does an organization need? That tends to be collaboration and that policy and governance and the security elements. So that's how we think. So how do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. How do you do it's, it for... Uh... Your company, because, you know, GitHub is, it's interesting you bring that up because that's the example I use at Databricks all the time as sort of the pinnacle of how you do it well. Now, it was a little bit easier for them because Git already, they, they cheated a little bit. It's not the case that GitHub came along, invented Git, Git, created yeah. Git, created <laughs> the community around it, developed it, shepherded it, created thought leadership, got the minimum viable audience, and then also built a commercial product. They, they didn't do that. They just took an existing thing that existed and built an amazing strategy. So how you, how do you do that when you have to do both? Well, I think you have to acknowledge that you have to do both. It just so happened, like, again, secular trend. What was the secular trend going on? It was SVN Mercurial to Git. <laughs> that was what was going on. Yeah. Like, okay, we could all see that was going on. Like, if who's going to capitalize on it? Well, it turned out the, the group that aggregated the biggest group of users around their collaboration platform was going to win. Um, but that was a secular trend, going back to the pattern. So, so yeah, I think it's super... I actually do think this is the best way to monetize open source. I, I, I really do. I think it's 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 and it's a product management exercise. I think the the again like 
So one of the things that really was different when I got involved with HashiCorp full time was we instituted a professional product management function and we said, we're going to draw the line here. And here's our thesis for monetization. And this is our thesis for audience. And so all of our products work the same way. So Terraform, the difference is we also control Terraform and all the products, but so we just bear that cost. And we, think that, you know, we get lots of benefit out of that. And then our commercial version of, of Terraform is an app, just like Databricks is an app that provides a prescriptive workflow and governance around the use of Terraform. And so that is how our products work today. And it's, it's just super repeatable across all the products. And, and so you keep the audience happy, uh, let the network effects fly around standardization because you're not blocking uh, what people want to use individually um, while allowing the global 2000 entities that want to standardize on this stuff, the comfort that you have a sustainable business model will generate billions of dollars of revenue to fund what they are now reliant upon. And, and that balance is, where, is, is sort of the blueprint. Yeah, and you at the same time have a huge moat, right? So if I wanted to start a new company and compete with you and I had the proprietary version of Terraform, which doesn't leverage open source, you're kind of the incumbent, you own that community, it's going to be very hard for me to get that minimum viable audience because they're going to all say, well, why don't you support the standard in this market, which is Terraform? Um, and I think so it just speaks to like those trends, right? Like again, the, the transition that happened was from, you know, uh, call it VRA and the ability to provision virtual machines into infrastructure as code. Whoever could identify that transition, build the network effects around their infrastructure as code model and let that bake in open source without trying to monetize it for a long time creates an enormous moat because that is the trend that's happened. Like that, that, like, and I think identifying that trend is is underappreciated. Like the simplicity of what happened in the infrastructure provisioning market, I went from like cloud management platforms where people click around with the UI to infrastructure as code. Like that's the cloud model, the infrastructure as code. Until there's a new platform, there's not another opportunity for someone. Uh, so that that's that's sort of what you look for. So how do you organize marketing uh, around? So now you have this open source project. They need bottoms up adoption. The audience is these developers, the separate community for it. Um, you know, that's the minimum viable audience. And then you yeah. have your enterprise software that you're selling, maybe the enterprise buyer. Is, is marketing organized for these different personas? And yeah, how you they are. Reached out yeah. to them. Do you have Devrel? Do you have DevRel or how does it work? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, do, I, uh, I think Microsoft actually nailed this model a long time ago. They, they, um, they, they, they think about the two audiences as peers. And so you're trying to get your practitioner audience on a journey, which is, you know, discover and learn, try and trial, use and advocate. Well, and you actually, you have no intention of monetizing them and you have to authentically yeah. commit to that. Like, I just want practitioners to be successful. Uh, that's good for everybody. And so we, and, and, so we have that in a today in a DevRel function that's run by a guy named Adam Fitzgerald, who actually ran DevRel for Amazon, and he worked with me at SpringSource prior. So he's a real deep pro at this, and that is what they do. They just measure that journey progression all day, every day. Is the audience growing, and are people getting the completion of that journey? And then there's an equivalent organization in the demand gen side, also in marketing, uh, that, that is sort of the more traditional, trying to get the tech decision maker across the Y tribe by journey and letting themselves select up the other side. So you guys actually separated those now. Yeah, we have separated DevRel, right? So there's a DevRel function that's much more technical, much more geared towards audiences, and they focus on the open source projects, driving the committers to the projects. And the messaging is different. The persona is different. And there's the you know product marketing. <laughs> and and they don't separate. want to get money. They don't want to yeah. yeah, you don't ask them to, to you know, put them well, on. You know what? You know what? They don't have money. I mean, the, the audience that you're reaching there. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, it's what we learned early, early days in Databricks is we would go bottom up, we would find the open source community that loved our stuff. And then we would ask them, you know, at some point, hey, can you pay me? And they'd say, look, I have like a thousand dollar budget here. Uh, you know, so you, that's when you realize that, so you can just target that community. They don't anyway have any money and don't, don't just drive the, the metrics to look for are committers, blog posts, thought leaderships, meetups, yeah. um, Trainings done through MOOCs. You know, we were able to train uh, three, four hundred thousand people on our massive online open courses, MOOCs that we had. Uh, so, separating out DevRel and having that as a separate function that just focuses on that, I think, is crucial. Uh, because there's going to be, that. you know, you get, yeah, here you give it, you give it to the marketing department and uh, well, the product marketing department, and they immediately put all the material behind a kind of webinar, sign up, give me your email, yeah, yeah. what's your title. Where do you work? No, do not use your Gmail. Give me your company corporate email address, right? <laughs> and that just drives away. So I think the first person we hired for head of DevRel, 
he said, I hate the word webinar. We should not use that at all for my DevRel team. We're not going to use, we're not, we're not doing a webinar on this thing. Right? Well, so, and then kind of break it down. And is the reason you're looking for evangelists, not the top of the funnel? And people see it as the top of the funnel, and then they destroy it. Is that the, is that the easy way to think about that? I think it's more about well, just like mm -hmm. committing to so, the different audiences you're going to engage with, and just know that like. And I think a lot of people make this mistake, and this is why dev tools companies are tricky, is because that audience of practitioners mm -hmm. doesn't have any budget, so leave them alone. Right. Uh, and, and 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 in your pursuit of revenue, you're going to turn them off. So you have to start with like an authentic commitment that says, "My, I just want to make you successful, and I want to be able to generate enough money that I can." turn that around and give you enough free stuff to make you successful again and, and, and right. just commit that this is a fixed cost of doing business and it, it drives yield commercially. And you just got to trust that it does, but you got to just separate, just acknowledge it's a different game. Sorry, Carlos. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. They, they don't have any budget and they're much more interested in thought leadership. So the market is doing things this way. I think that's wrong. We should do it this way. Here's how we think about it. And then it's a, much deeper sort of opinionated piece uh, that you put out there. That typically comes from technical folks who understand that market, right? That's what they want to le learn. That's the first class of things they want to read. The second kind of things they want to read is maybe tutorials. Like, let me explain to you, this is pretty complicated. Let me break it down to you how you would do sentiment analysis uh, using yep. machine learning on massive corpus text. So you write about those things, but it's hard to churn out a lot of high quality content like that. Uh, so it's just different audiences. So you do this high quality stuff on the DevRel side, you get, that's thought leadership. You get these kind of avant-garde developers who loves that stuff. Then you have the corporate uh, product marketing stuff. That's different. The webinars that you do, they're not sort of, they're produced by product marketers. They're not super deep technical content by thought leaders in the space. Uh, and that's much more monetizable because those are oftentimes people that will attend those things, those webinars and read those eBooks those are people that have budget and they know the name of the game. They know that, look, in the end of the day, I just want to be educated on this stuff and then buy some of your, if your tech is good and I can build a relationship here. So it's two different funnels. One yeah. funnel becomes product sales and you sell it. The other funnel is uh, you convert them into uh, uh, developers that are sort of evangelizing and uh, adopting and becoming part of the uh, community. They intersect a little bit with the other funnel in that they also work in companies where you might be selling, but you're not actually going to sell to that particular developer or that community. That person might have an opinion on this. They might ask him, have you used Databricks? What do you think about it? But that's not the executive buyer. That's not uh, necessarily even the champion in the account. So it's a little bit two separate funnels. Yep. yep, yep, yep. It's almost like uh, DevRel is closer to brand marketing than it is to lead gen. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not yeah. legit at all. Yeah, yeah. I, just, yeah. It, the learning for us is um, we ended up putting education in DevRel as well. because that's how they engage and and yeah, we really learn. We we, we are we're trying to take people on journeys of education and 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 we ended up creating certifications out of it so you can become a certified Terraform associate and you know all digitally. That's how that's how. It works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in fact. Uh, we have academic access program as part of that. So we work with the universities as part of DevRel and they teach. So, you know, UC Berkeley and a lot of universities use our software then to teach their students so that you can get sort of mass effect through that. And we actually give it away for free to them. Uh, they don't have to pay us. So that way you continue the thought leadership. So you train the next generation of developers coming out of these universities. Because in four years, there'll be like a whole slew of people that are coming out of these universities. And if they're all trained on using this technology, that's what they're going to pick up. You mentioned VMware before. They did that really, really well back in the day, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's awesome. Um, I have a question on you know the whole sort of um, this thing that's going on with open source licenses because people are being threatened by you know other people picking up your uh, <laughs> open source project. So you know there's a lot of people. There's a lot going on. I think actually Amazon just announced their own kind of Elasticsearch distro the other day and. Um, some open source companies are changing the licenses. They're, you know, moving to, uh, you know, SSPL or whatever it's called. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think every open source company needs to think hard about what their mode is. Uh, and it's different for everybody. I think uh, certain certain categories of tech, and 
actually, it comes back to positioning. <laughs> You'll notice how we position ourselves. We are we 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 are the enabler of multi, and so yeah. you know, does a cloud provider have an incentive to create a provisioning mechanism using Terraform on Azure and Google? No, they just don't. There's no incentive given how we're positioned in the market. So we we exist in a seam in the market where just the incentives are are authentically not in that direction. Is this something we think about? Sure, but like the positioning is important. Point number two is, I, I think um, I got a learning, like the, in open source, so much of the value comes from the certification of integrations to it. So uh, to give an example, um, you know, I'll use Terraform as, as an example, right? The value of Terraform, one of the big values of Terraform is that there, we've built a, a provider ecosystem of north of four or 500 different types of technology you can interface, you can use using Terraform, but we control the certification program. And so, Therefore, like it's actually, and in Vault is the same. Vault has sort of secret engines and system backends, and, and there's maybe 15 different secret engines in the world, but there's an infinite number of system backends and, and people, like this is the runtime path of stuff. So people want that certification. So so for us, that is a, then that, that makes it, you know, just a different equation. And not to say we don't think about it, but like the, the, the surface area of integrations actually makes it harder for somebody else to do as long as you're being a good citizen. I think like like the, 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 like the elastics of the world, like there, there's really one integration point. It's SQL, JDBC, ODBC, or whatever they use to, 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 to inject SQL or use SQL to pull data out. Um, it makes it a little easier. So they need to think about other mechanisms. So I, I, I hesitate to give suggestions to other people, but I would say, you know, in our case, the positioning is deliberate to allow us to exist in the same and, and the architecture of the network effects and certification around are deliberate. These are things we've thought deeply, deeply about to make sure that there's protection long-term. I think everybody needs to think that way. Because yeah, I think it's, it's such a, uh, you know, changing the license is such a move from a position of weakness that, you know, from a marketing strategy standpoint, it's just a very dangerous thing to do because to the customer, they don't care about, like you have the guys who wrote the original software or whatever, they just care like, oh, you don't think you can build a better product than Amazon. So you're going to resort to a legal idea. And that, like, like to me, that's such a dangerous thing to do um, because perception is really hard to change. And once you, once you put that out there, you can't take it back. So I, I think that's a very last resort type of idea. Yeah, it yeah. alienates the community. And then, you know, that's what happened. Amazon saw that and said, hey, we'll give you the real version. That's We're not going to model it or mess around with it. Here's a clean version of the, of the software. We call it something else, but at least it's community-driven and it doesn't have any funky license and it doesn't. all the stuff that's inside of it will have, um, you know, it will be clean. Yeah, 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 definitely. Well, we're, we're coming up on the hour. So um, actually, let's just, uh, let me check in with Zed and see, like, do you have any last questions, Ed? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This has been a really fascinating conversation. So thanks for letting me be part. Um, the, the one thing I had a question on is how does this change if your market or your customer isn't the developer, but is the business? So if you're selling business applications, um, I'm guessing like the product marketer, the technical competency of the product marketer isn't as important. And then also it's like more of a top-down driven decision as opposed to bottoms up, depending on the yeah, business think, uh, sales cycle. Yeah, I think the frameworks are the same. It's like, it just it may just be you only have one persona really, or your persona is the user buyer and then the corporate aggregator that is sort of like the business decision maker. I think that like, so the frameworks will apply, um, but yeah, I think that like the the reality of these like this infrastructure tech is it just it just engages that super sophisticated technical audience in addition to the other one. So it just makes it harder harder. So yeah, I don't think it's it's quite as complicated for uh, an application um, to just committing to like the user journeys. Basically, we actually we're super frameworky about it. We go step one. Uh, identify your 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 story, your, your positioning. Step two: identify the personas. Step three: identify the journeys you want those people to take. Step four: automate, <laughs> and that's kind of the blueprint. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, you're so, doing so, the, so the persona, so the personas are different, right? If you're if you're marketing to sort of HR, for instance, 
you're building Workday, you still need people can understand and speak to a head of HR. But then the sales process, the person that approves the budget and the procurement and the messaging for the execs that you're talking to higher up, that might have, it might be the CIO. So that difference will still exist, right? So you want to still get the HR folks to love your software and think this is awesome. Uh, so that's that's similar to the DevRel, but they're not developers anymore. Yeah. But the buying motion, it's still, you probably need to still have messaging that works for CIOs that will own the software and deploy it in the whole enterprise. And you need to make sure the TCO makes sense for them and it aligns with their company strategy and the security needs of that enterprise. So it ends up being the same framework. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, it's like what Dave was saying about Microsoft, right? In terms of the practitioners and how Microsoft had that uh, marketing framework for the practitioners. So I guess that's similar. Yeah. And there's always tension, and Microsoft does a great job of like carving off uh, budget for the practitioner machinery because otherwise it, it, it'll get consumed by the people that want to sell software <laughs> that have yeah. a shorter time horizon. And if you want to build something really long term and enduring, you have to build scale adoption by the users. And so that's why they did. Yeah. And I guess like I always thought Salesforce's thing here was genius where they created this whole ecosystem around Salesforce configuration where people uh, could uh, sort of, um, like they created like a whole certification around it, right? Yeah, And like exactly. consulting practice. And that en ends up being ends up being like a second order uh, community for even if it's not an open source software. Yeah, we're all, we're all trying to figure out network effects. How do you create network effects? Um, and and that's, that's one of the tactics that, that, that we all use. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Uh, All right, Ben. I think we're up on the hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, so we finished the hour. I want to thank um, Dave so much for joining us. This was this was awesome and fascinating. And thank you, Zed, for coming up as a impromptu and asking sure, some man. great questions. And thank you. Uh, also, uh, you know, thank you to Felicia Ackman, Jules, and Ushvin for for helping us get started. And we will see you next week. We've got an exciting boss talk uh, with Todd McKinnon. And uh, Eugenio from Auth Zero, and they're going to talk about their $6.5 billion merger. So acquisitions next time. Yes. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Guys. Great. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everybody. Right. Thanks, Lucia. Bye. Thank you.